going to be in John chapter 3. We're back to the Gospel of John. Super exciting. I wasn't here last week, uh, so I just want to say what an amazing Easter it was two weeks ago. And I'm sure it was great Ascension Sunday last week where we talk about not only did Jesus die, not only did he rise from the dead, but he is now ascended, sitting at the right hand of the Father, Father very much alive in heaven, and he is working out his sovereign uh, governance of the world as he prepares for his second coming. So we're back in the Gospel of John this week. So excited about that. Uh, so excited to see these parents. Parent, where, where, where are my parents back yet? Oh, yes, okay. We forgot to give you your Jesus Storybook Bibles. Okay, so here is a gift from us to you. Where's Evelyn's? Ah, oh, there's. Okay, okay, here we go. This is our favorite children's resource. If you don't have one of those, uh, you should just buy it for yourself. It's also very good for adults. You say, yeah, most newborns can't read. Yes, but this book will help parents learn the gospel to teach to their kids. So I've been reading it for years to my boys, and I've learned so much through it. So that's uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, really great resource. Okay, so uh, before we read the passage we're in today, uh, I want to start by reading Principle Zero at Sedaris. Okay, um, and if you haven't been to the 14 Principles class, I think we've got one of those coming up in the next month or so, and we talk about these 14 principles that are uh, they're really uh, meant to just be sort of uh, helpful little um, pithy ways of living that align us with the way of Jesus. But we have this principle zero, which is we say, since it's baby dedication, it's sort of like the centering uh, pinwheel for, for, the, for, the, for the baby's mobile that, that spins around. So all 14 dangle from this one, but this is the one. If you don't have this one, all of the other 14 don't really mean much. And so principle zero is this. I'll read it to you. So listen close. It's going to, I think, come alive from this text today. So I wanted everyone to be aware of it. So let me just read it, and you can find these on our website. Principle zero is this. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Every person and organization has a principle zero, whether they know it or not. This overarching principle is like the connecting point of a baby's mobile that all other principles beautifully dangle and twirl from. When you adopt this oft-unspoken principle, it prepares you to live into the others well. Forget the most important truth, and you will find yourself tired and worn out trying to live out the others. All of, and this, and so here it is, all of creation and time itself revolves around the triune person and work of God and his self-revelation in the Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, the chief purpose of all creation, including every man, woman, and child, is to participate in this centering and lifting high, in other words, glorifying, of God in all his brilliance. Of course... Because he has made the name of Jesus the name above every other name and made all of salvation and the restoration of all brokenness flow through the person and work of Jesus, we have the privilege and joy of exposing Christ's true nature and the reality of his loving actions, the gospel, to the world around us in both word, deed, and restored being. When we embrace and enjoy the blessing of grace made real through, the per- through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we step into our chief purpose of human living. 
Having said that, while the world and the story of it are not fundamentally about us, this does not mean that God is indifferent to us. The opposite is true. Your well-being is very important to God, as God has wrapped himself up in you and you in him. That is the craziest part of the gospel story. God has decided that he is now most glorified when human beings are most satisfied in him. The amazing news teaches us that I can no longer view my life as merely my own. God has bought me at a great price. He has attached his story to my story. He has given his son's life as a ransom for my life. And therefore, I must accept not just his love, but also his recommissioning to magnify the goodness of God in my Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Seeing God as he is through the lens of the gospel and seeing myself as I am meant to be as an instrument for God's glory, I can now live in the full freedom and purpose of my new life in Christ. When I embrace God's plan, I rediscover what it means to enjoy life by finding my identity in knowing, trusting, and resting in my Creator, my Redeemer, my Sustainer. Perhaps it's now clear why these life-restoring blessings will never come to pass if we continue to believe this life is about me, my happiness, my comfort, my autonomy, my preferences, my money, my legacy, etc. What we believe shapes what we see. If our gaze is inward, it will affect how we see and interpret everything around us. This is why the tender voice of God whispers the kindest words of all. Dear child, it's not about you. Spent a lot of time writing those. <laughs> First time I've ever publicly preached those words. The story we'll read today is a perfect model. Some might say the greatest example we have of principle zero that's ever walked the earth. Ready to read about it? <laughs> Turn with me to John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. If you don't have a Bible, there's these black ones like this in the seat back in front of you. Or be sure when you leave today to take one of these blue journals. It's the gospel, just the Gospel of John with room for notes. And then you can take these to your cohort, take it home, study on your own. So that uh, perhaps when you come on Sunday, it won't be the first time you've seen the text that we'll be reading. If you do grab the Bible, we will be on page, what are we going to be? Page Nine, uh, 943, 943, it's a little cheat sheet. So, are you ready to read with me this last encounter in the Gospel of John about John the Baptizer? Now remember, it's very confusing. This is part of the reason I believe nobody's making this stuff up. There are so many Johns in the book of John. There's John, the apostle, who is the writer but that's not the same as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, who's the cousin of Jesus, who's baptizing. We talked about him uh, 
in length uh, several weeks ago. Uh, But this is the last time we'll see in John's gospel, John the baptizer. And it's this beautiful scene. So you ready? Starting in verse 22. After this, so now the scene has changed. And the after this is after the encounter with Nicodemus, if you remember that. This great encounter with Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, a high-ranking Jewish uh, authority who comes to Jesus in the darkness and just can't quite understand what Jesus is saying about being born again. That those who receive and inherit the kingdom must be born again. And he just can't get it. He just doesn't see how that makes sense. And then after this, so John the apostle and the writer of the gospel is now transitioning. But I wanted to remind you of that because these stories are placed purposefully next to each other. So now we're after this. Here we go. Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside. So out into a rural setting, away from Jerusalem where they had been, the capital where everything is happening. They go off into the Judean countryside where he, that's Jesus, spent time with them, his disciples, and baptized. Now we know from other places that it was Jesus' custom not to do the baptizing, but to have his disciples do the baptizing. But Jesus is there. Why would Jesus do that? Probably so that no one would say, well, I had Jesus do my baptism. What about you? Oh, you just had Peter? Tough luck. So, um, so but they're all there. I mean, Jesus is there. He's, he's a part of it. Um, and they're baptizing people. Okay, verse 23. John also is baptizing. And this is John the Baptist or the baptizer, the cousin of Jesus, not John the gospel writer who wrote this. So John the baptizer also is baptizing an eon near Salim. Because there was plenty of water there. Pause. Plenty of water. Man, I, I, was, I was helping a friend move the other day. Shout out to myself. Um, <laughs> I wasn't in my notes. And then I was like, what am I doing? I, but the, the point is, I didn't need to say that. Oh my gosh. So it's not about me, people. It's not about me. Let me get a drink. I'm embarrassed now. I happened to be at a friend who lived on the 13th floor of a downtown apartment, and I could see out over Seattle. And you could see the sound, and you could see Lake Union, you just a little bit of Lake Washington. I love this line. Everybody was baptizing because there was plenty of water. Plenty of water in Seattle. We're not going to run out of baptism water. And every summer, we do baptisms at Sedaris at Green Lake. If you have been stirred up over the last year and you want to give your life publicly to Jesus, you may have already done it privately, but publicly and say, I want to follow Jesus, you need to start thinking about baptism. Plenty of water in Seattle. We can go almost anywhere and find some place to baptize. And baptism is this public declaration that you want to be united with Jesus. Just be thinking about that. If you've never been baptized, we would love to have a conversation with you about that. Plenty of water in Seattle. Lord, please help them forget that comment about helping a friend move. Okay. Not about me. Okay. So there's plenty of water. Jesus and his disciples are doing baptism. John the baptizer and his disciples. So he's got a band of disciples, students of his that are also uh, doing baptisms. People were coming and being baptized. Since John had not yet been thrown into prison. 
Okay, this is another interesting point that just to bring us back up to speed. Remember what we said about John's gospel. There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's is written like a decade or so after the other gospels had been circulating. So he throws this little line in here since John had not been thrown into prison. And if you know the story of John the Baptist from the other gospels, you know he's also beheaded by Herod. So John is just assuming that everybody knows that John the Baptist gets thrown into prison. You see how he just throws it in? So he's assuming. He, remember we've said this gospel is like, like helping clarify and dig deeper into some truths that maybe had been forgotten or weren't clear to people. And John says, I've got to write a fourth account and I'm going to look at things from a slightly different perspective and talk about stories that others don't talk about to fill out the picture. Remember that? Here's a great example of why we know that. He's like, since John hadn't been thrown into prison. Wait, wait, what? And he never talks about it. <laughs> so he's assuming you've heard this elsewhere. So John does eventually get thrown into prison. But he hasn't yet, and that's why he's still out there baptizing people. Okay, verse 25. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a certain Jew about purification. Circle that in your journal. Purification. A dispute has arisen about purification. Verse 26. So they came to John, the baptizer, and they told him, Rabbi, the one you testify... So they is his disciples, his students, John the Baptist's students. They came to him and they said, Rabbi, the one you testified about... And who was with you across the Jordan, go back a chapter, he, 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 everyone's going to him. He's baptizing and everyone's going to him. So they're like, what's going on? Our crowd, our following is decreasing and his is increasing. Why is that? John responded, quote, no one can receive anything unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. The groom's friend, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. Since this joy of mine, oh, sorry, so this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease, John says. Unbelievable. Verse 31. Now, let me just give you a clue here. Notice that in your Bible, the quotation marks end. Now we have the Apostle John giving us theological commentary on this scene with John the Baptist. So now these are John the Apostle's ideas about what's going on here. Ready? The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. 
For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Jesus has just said this to Nicodemus. Right? John 3.16. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life, eternal life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So those are John the Apostle's commentary on this scene. So it gives us some insight about why he's decided, of all the stories to bring up, that he doesn't feel have fully reflected the truth of who Jesus is. He's like, no, this, will, this story will help you see what you might not be seeing. What exactly we believe about what Jesus is and how he's different than everyone else. So those are John, that's John's commentary. And then it ends. And then he moves on to another story about Jesus, and we'll get there next week about the Samaritan woman at the well. Great story. And he just ends. And, and because I told you to circle what? Purification. You're like, well, nobody answered the question. But John didn't just put it in there. Ink's very expensive. He wouldn't have just put that question in unless he had a reason. What's the reason? Let me just let that sit with you. Now, before we dig in here, I want you to flip back a page or two into the beginning of John. John chapter 1, the great preamble or prologue that will give us some insight into how to understand why John the Apostle writes about this encounter, this final encounter with John the Baptist, because it seems like he's already said a lot of the same things. In the previous sermon, you probably remember some of the same ideas. What's new? What, what is John the Baptist saying that's new that John the Apostle thinks we need to write another story about? Haven't we covered that? Perhaps not. So go and let's reread the preamble or prologue. It's never bad to read John 1. John 1, 1 to verse 18. Read with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life, that kind of life, was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's the baptizer. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the light, the true light that gives light to everyone. He was coming into the world. He was in the world. Now he's back to Jesus. And the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. Those who were born, not of natural descent or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but born of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, that's the baptizer, testified concerning Him and exclaimed, This was the one whom I said, the one coming after me, ranks ahead of me, because He existed before me. 
Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So you got to remember that. That's how he started it. And it almost seems like he's come now full circle back to it, doesn't it? When he explains why he's brought up this last scene with John the baptizer, the witness who has prepared the way for the revelation of the one true God. So maybe that brings it to life for you a little bit. Now this is very important to understand then when we now look at John the baptizer's response to his students coming to him and saying, why is everyone going to Jesus now? Shouldn't we be worried? Our, our band is decreasing. We're not going to have as much influence. We've been doing such a good thing. Yeah, we've been doing a great thing, John says. But to understand what he means when he says, he, that's Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. How can he say, my joy is complete when everything I've worked for is now going somewhere else. How can he be so excited to be just the groomsman and not the groom? The consistent message of the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, is that our chief end, as we've said, is to glorify Christ and enjoy him forever. John models for us what this means. This means, truly the message of the New Testament is that whatever weight that you have been given, yes, you've been given it. What, what it look at verse 27, chapter 3, verse 27. What does John the Apostle remind us of? Actually, uh, John the Baptizer, what does he remind us of in verse 27? Let's read it together again. He says, John responded, Quote, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. So any weight, significance that you have, John the baptizer would say, it was given to you from heaven. So the consistent message is that whatever weight you have, whether that weight is money, whether that weight is talent, whether that, that weight is title or influence, whatever the weight you have, you are to give it all to the glory of God. Think about it like scales. Whatever weight you have, this is Jesus over here on this hand. This is us over here. Whatever weight, we're to put it on this end of the scale so that we go low and He's raised high. That's literally your job in the world. Is put all your weight on that scale to lift high the name and person of Jesus. John gets that. I was thinking about uh, the scam, which is sort of the strong man hammer mallet at the, carnival, at, the, at, at the fair, at the county fair. Do you guys ever do that? And you hit, you hit the thing, and then the, you know, goes up, and if you get the top, there's a bell that rings. That's literally your job in life, is to swing your hammer bend low, put all your force into it so that the name of Jesus 
lifts high. And when all God's people do that, the name of Jesus is exalted. The scales are tipped, and they were created to be tipped. Completely. John gets that. He's thrown all of his weight on the scale of lifting high the Messiah, the Savior. Now, when I say that, if you're not yet a Christian, or you're wrestling with, this seems odd, or you've heard people say this, it's a fair question. That analogy, Dave, feels like God and Jesus are egomaniacs. That they need all the attention and all the glory and all all the fame. How can that be true? How can that be the God that we should worship? Why does He need all the attention? It's a great question. It's a really good question. And if you don't figure that out, that question will haunt you and it will keep you from putting all of your weight onto the scale you're meant to put it on. You, you'll come over to this uh, strongman hammer thing and you'll just give it one of these and you'll walk away. Some people might, might not even know you participated in that. I used to be there. And I just give it a little, little bit of weight as I walked by. And then I saw clearly why it was my chief end to give all my weight. Whatever gift had been given me from heaven, whatever money had been given me from heaven, whatever relationships had been given me from heaven, whatever connections or titles or networks had been given to me from heaven, that I would put all of that into the glorification of Jesus Christ my Savior. I think... This passage gives us three hints as to why that's a good idea and not God's ego getting in the way of our fun. You ready? Let's start with verses 31 to 36. That's the Apostle John's theological commentary on this scene with John the baptizer giving an analogy about a wedding. (laughs) Okay? So let's, let's read that again real quick and then... That'll be point one. He says this, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He says it twice, so it must be important. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one... Excuse me. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Okay. Basically, John the Apostle is saying this. Heaven and earth are not the same category. They're not equivalent. They're not two pretty similar things just doing it a little different. When we realize the category difference between Jesus and every other human being, 
we start to see why it's obvious that he must increase and we must decrease. Moreover, if you fail to see the difference between the man of heaven, Jesus, and any other spiritual or holy man, you will miss, uh, you, will, you will not just miss, you will miss, but you'll not just miss the best show in town. That's not why John's going. You should get up there because John sort of knows he's about to do some miracles. You're going to miss some <laughs> great show. Don't miss it. That's not what he's saying. You'll actually miss out on true life itself, is what the apostle's saying. And I believe what John the Baptizer is saying. The kind of life that can only exist on the other side of the penalty of sin being paid by the God-man Jesus Christ. Because what does he says? Otherwise, the wrath of God remains on you. So John's not just saying, you know, I understand why people are going up there like, that's going to be a great show. He's saying... If they don't go, they'll miss true life. And I think that's what happens to us sometimes when we think about this difference between heaven and earth. We kind of put them in the same category. Heaven's just like a a little bit like earth. No, the man of heaven, Jesus Christ, who came from heaven, who was above all because he was before all. He's so utterly different. And John the Baptist knows that. That the kind of life he brings is so different. It's not just a little bit better. It's utterly, categorically different than every other holy or spiritual man that's ever existed. Including John the baptizer. So it's not God's ego that insists that he gets the glory, the attention, the crowd. It's not his ego. It's his love. His love. That's why he's trying to get your attention. He's trying to give you life. That's his love, not his ego. Second thing, look at this analogy that John the Baptizer uses about the groom versus the groomsman or the best man. John is sort of equating himself to the best man, and Jesus is the groom coming. Now, this picture that John uses. You've got to remember, things were a little bit different back in the day. It wasn't actually the bride that came and walked down the aisle that everybody was waiting for. It was actually the groom that everybody was waiting for. I don't know when that got flipped. I'm sort of glad. <laughs> Just Allie's a lot prettier than me. But, but it's flipped in all ancient cultures. So let's read that again. So verse 28, chapter 3. John's saying, everything that anyone has is from heaven. And then he says this, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He's saying, I've heard this voice. It's complete. He must increase. I must decrease. So it was the job of the best man to entertain the guests, to prepare the guests, to get them excited for the coming of the groom. At some point, the bride would come and go into uh, 
the bedroom chambers of the groom and wait for him there. And it was the best man's job to guard that and protect that and let nobody in there and nobody see the bride until the groom came. And then the groom would come and the consummation of the marriage, this long betrothal period would end and it was an amazing moment. What an honor, what a privilege to be the best man, to be the best friend of the groom. For a time, you were the center of attention. For a time, you were the one that got to prepare. But then that time always ends because the groom always shows up. And before Jesus ever arrives on the scene, John had been given this great task. And he... And he <laughs> was called upon to give the greatest, best man speech earth had ever seen. That's what he'd been doing for all this time. He's been giving the best man speech, telling people about the groom and how great he was and that he was coming. He gave one heaven of a best man speech. At most weddings, I've got to be honest with you, I'm so sorry if I didn't love your, if I officiated your wedding and I didn't love your groomsman. But if I don't know the, the groom very well, I judge so hard the groom by the groomsman. <laughs> like, like, I look at the groomsman, especially the best man's speech, and I, I make a judgment about the groom. Honestly. So like the, I, do a, I do a lot of weddings where I know the bride really well, and I might not know the groom so well. Or if I go to like a cousin's wedding, and I don't know the groom, and then like the best man gets up and gives a speech, I'm like, and if it's like, if it bombs, I'm like, yikes. <laughs> Tough cuz. <laughs> like, I don't know your group, but I'm just like, if that's his best man, like, y'all need some new friends. I mean, does anybody, am I the only one? I'm just so judgmental. It's not about me, but I'm so judgmental. Lord, save me. But like, you can tell a lot about the groom by the best man's speech. And I've heard some really great best man speeches. And I'm like, wow, that dude's probably sweet. So John crushes his duty. His job is complete, and therefore his joy is complete. He has fulfilled this amazing privilege to set the stage for the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. As the Christ comes and reunites with his people, his bride, the church. His joy's complete. I love that line. So of course, it's not hard for him to step. His disciples don't get it. His students don't. John, why, why aren't you more upset about this? My joy is complete, guys. It's it's happening. He's here. My my baptism. Remember, we talked about this. It's just a preparation baptism, a, a baptism of repentance. His baptism is so much greater than my baptism. It, it, it's, it's a baptism of forgiveness of sin. It's a baptism of the Spirit of God. Of course I want people to have His, not just mine. Unbelievable. It's not egotistical for the groom to be the groom. It's not humility, because it's like, I thought Jesus was humble. It's not humility to come and, be, and show up and be like, everyone's like, the groom's here. He's like, ah, guys, I'm just one of the guys. 
No, you're not. You're the groom. And Jesus says, yes, I am. You see what I'm saying? Like, if you're the groom, you're the groom. And the groomsmen get that. Good groomsmen get that. And they step stage left and they let the groom be the center of attention. John the Baptist gets it. I must decrease because he's so much greater than me. I could never, John would say, I could never be the groom to this bride. That's what he's saying. I know that without a shadow of doubt. I could not save any of these people. I could only prepare them for the Savior. You see that? The groom is the groom. That's not egotistical. It's only natural. When heaven shows up, earth enjoys the party. It doesn't need to be the party. Third thing, and this is related to the last thing. You may have noticed, or you may have not noticed, a very important word in the story of John the Baptist. Did you catch it? Did you hear it and be like, oh, I've heard that word somewhere else. What was the word? Does anybody know what it was? The word is voice. What does it say? John's, in his analogy, saying, when the voice of the groom shows up, I delight. Turn back. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 22. Do you remember this? These, these high-ranking officials from Jerusalem come out to John when he's, when he's out there baptizing before Jesus comes on the scene. And they're asking him, who, who, do you, who are you? Like, what are you? Like, what are you doing? Remember, they're having this dialogue, and they're asking him if, if he's like a reincarnation of Elijah, or is he like Moses come back? He's the great prophet. Who is he? And he's like, guys, let me tell you. So read it with me. Verse 22 says, who are you then? These high-ranking officials asked him. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? So what is, like, how would you describe yourself in a few words? Like, who are you? What's your identity? What are you all about? John said, verse 23, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John's whole identity is wrapped around this idea that he is a voice and then he tells a story, an analogy to paint a picture of why he's stepping off the scene to say, I heard a voice and I said, my time is done. Imagine what that voice must have been like for someone whose whole identity is wrapped up in being a voice sent by God to hear another voice and stand aside and say, I must decrease, he must increase. My voice must decrease. Turn down my volume. Turn up his volume. When your whole thing is being a voice. Whoa. The moment has come when the voice above all voices shows up on the scene and renders John's mission complete. Heaven's voice has arrived. John the Apostle will say, this one speaks the very words of God. And so John says, I'm good. My work here is done. And my joy is complete. John the baptizer doesn't go, hey Jesus, can you please just quiet down a little bit so that the rest of us can keep our businesses going? Can you just tune it down a little bit? You're a little noisy over there. He doesn't say, hey, JC, 
because they're cousins. Hey, JC, just stay in your lane over there. I'll stay in mine. We can kind of both profit off of this thing. Of course not. When you understand the reality of who Jesus is, you know that this voice is utterly different than John's voice. So perhaps those are three reasons why I see in this text, John gets, it's not ego that's keeping Jesus high and lifted up, it's reality. But I want to dig into one one other reason. I I, I didn't really want to call it a fourth reason because it's not really on the same level as the other reasons. It's like this whole overarching reason that I think John the Apostle tells this extra story about John the Baptist to explain why John is so insistent that he must decrease and Christ Jesus must increase. And to do that, i got to bring us back to that word I had you circle. came up right at the beginning of the scene. Like, it's how John starts the whole story. What was it? It's the question, right? Asked by this certain Jew. What about purification? And then it never gets answered. Or it seems like it never gets answered. So, if it's true that John just doesn't bring stuff up just because, and I don't think he does, then why doesn't he come back and answer the question about purification? What is the answer to the question about purification then? It's, clear, it's not clear to me. Maybe it was more clear to John. Let me try to make it clear. This is what I think John is saying. You ready? Now, we can't know for sure that John the baptizer had this in mind when he picked his analogy about a wedding and a bride and a groom. We can't know for sure, but I think we can say with some level of assurance that John the Apostle, who wrote the gospel, had this in mind. And I'll show you why that is in a second. Because the Apostle John wrote other letters and books of the Bible as well. So the first thing I want to point out, I want you to go back to chapter 1, verse 29. Chapter 1, verse 29. This is the first time that John the baptizer sees Jesus coming and realizes who he is. The Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the world. Let's read it together. The next day, chapter 1, verse 29, says that, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here, or behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. Okay. So we have this connection now. John clearly believe, John the baptizer clearly believes Jesus is the Lamb of God. We did a whole sermon on that. You can go back and listen to that. The Lamb of God, fulfilling all of the Old T- Testament sacrificial system for purification. The Lamb of God. This is a new kind of Lamb, a heavenly Lamb that takes away sin once for all. As far as the east is from the west, so is your sin when you receive the blood of the Lamb. John the baptizer believed that. Of course, John the apostle believed that. He wrote it down. Okay. Now, we'll put it on the screen. If you go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, which is the prophetic vision of the end times, of the last days, sort of a glimpse into the future reality of heaven and earth reuniting, 
John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote this. Revelation 21, 9-11 says, Then one of the seven angels, this prophetic vision, who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He has carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So there's this prophetic vision of of heaven reuniting with earth, the, the heavenly Jerusalem reuniting with the earthly Jerusalem, heaven and earth coming together, being remarried. And it says that the Lamb has a wife, the bride, which is the church. Okay, so you've seen how these are connecting. We have a lamb, we have a bride, we have a groom. Bible students, does any other passage of Scripture come to mind when you hear about the groom, purification, washing to make radiant the bride? Anybody? Bonus points. But it's not about you. <laughs> Anybody? Wrong answer. No. <laughs> Good answer. The one that comes to mind for me, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's throw it up. This is the Apostle Paul. Now remember, God wrote the whole Bible, so he's using different human authors. But here we have in Ephesians chapter 5, you've maybe heard it at a wedding. I think they stopped sharing this at weddings few decades ago, because <laughs> it can be challenging. But it's beautiful, actually, because it's an analogy of, a hum- of human marriage as it reflects divine marriage of Christ and his church, the bride. And this is what it says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy. Cleansing, that's the Greek word for purifying. Purifying her with the washing of the water by the word. He did this. Jesus did this to present the church to himself in splendor. So in the mind of John, the apostle, I know almost certainly, he has this analogy in mind, which is why he brings up this time that John the Baptist equated himself to the groomsman and Jesus the groom, and the bride is the church, and who purifies the bride? The husband. When he comes. Through what? The washing of the water through the word. And he is the word, John says, John 1.1, who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God, and when he comes, he will what? Purify and cleanse and sanctify his people, the church, the bride. You see it? You might have to listen to that again. I want at some point in your life your head to explode. (laughs) Because when I studied this, my head exploded. I think that's what John the Apostle is doing to answer the question, what about purification? What about it? John the baptizer says, 
Dude, if you had any idea the cosmic plan of God for washing his bride, the church, with the water, you wouldn't understand why when the, bride, when the groom comes, you're so excited, your joy is complete, you're getting out of the way because he is here to do what? Purify his church. John's saying, yes. I will answer this question of purification. My baptism is only one of preparation. His baptism is one of purification. Only the husband, only the lamb, only the divine groom from heaven can purify through the washing of the word that which has been stained by sin so completely and utterly that no other holy man, holy system, religious uh, uh, religious the word I'm looking for because there are people who are so religiously pure whatever their religion is they, they, they work it out to the T and they try hard no religious completism can do what Jesus can do because why remember our things heaven is so different than earth so any earthly religion no matter if you follow it perfectly can clean you from the thing that needs heaven to clean you from that, that's what John is saying, and so the groom is here, and he rejoices at his voice because only he can, tra- can transform you from one degree of glory to another. And he's here, and he's just down the river, and he's made himself available. And if you run to him now, go, go, go. What are you still doing here listening to me? Go to him, the Lamb of God, who can actually take away your sin. That's what's going on. Do you feel that? He's like... I don't even know why I have to answer this. Purification? Are you serious? This is utterly different what he can do for you. Be united to him for eternity. He's the one true God. Don't wait another minute. I'm done. He's here. Go to him. He's the one. There is no actual purification without him there's only preparation so here's a question you can ask out at a bar with friends one day you could say it like this besides jesus always say it like this because if they know you're a christian they'll be like i know what you're going to say jesus besides jesus who is the greatest human that's ever lived Great bar question. Who's the greatest human that's ever lived? Here's the strange irony of everything I've said about John must decrease so Jesus can increase. He's put all his weight on him. This is the irony. It's the paradox and the beauty of the gospel. All of this talk, when Jesus is out at the bar, And he's asked the same question, who is the greatest human that's ever lived? Do you know who Jesus says? Matthew 11, 11. John the baptizer, the greatest man ever born on earth. What? I I, I thought John was giving his life away. He was decreasing. He was was saying, I don't even need to be seen anymore. And Jesus says, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He 
personified principle zero. He knew without a shadow of a doubt that none of his mission, none of his message, none of him himself was about him. He knew that it was all pointing to the one who is greater, his cousin Jesus. God come in the flesh, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Lamb who takes away our sin, the one who when you turn and run to him, he will give you his baptism of the Spirit and you will be made part of his family. And because John knew this, and knew that all creation and every creature was designed to bring glory to this name, Jesus, the Son of God. And because he lived his life based on this peculiar algorithm, John, above all men, was blessed. Not because he ate well, not because he was comfortable, not because he saw the world, not, not, not because he lived a long life. I already said it. In a month or so, he's getting his head chopped off. He lived the greatest life that any man besides Jesus has ever lived because he gave it all away for the glorification of the Son of God. His joy was full. He used every ounce of his gifts from heaven to lift high the name of Jesus. <laughs> I don't know why I get, like I wrote this down and I got emotional. Now I'm like getting emotional talking about it. I just have written here at the bottom of my notes. Thank you, John. Thank you, John, for lifting high the name of Jesus so that people could run down the river to his baptism and have eternal life. 